Welcome to the podcast of the Quality of Government Institute, where we have conversations with well-known experts who try to make sense of politics and governments all over the world. Today in the podcast, we have Professor Simon Hicks, who currently holds the Stein Rockan Chair in Comparative Politics at the European University Institute in Florence. He has studied and studies diverse topics, among other political behavior and institutions in the European Union. Not only diverse research interests, but he also uses different methodologies, quantitative and experimental methods, and also historical political science and political economy. So, Simon, thank you very much for being here. Welcome. Last year, you released the latest edition of your best-selling core <laughs> textbook on the political system of your period, as best-selling as one can get in political science, I guess. Your textbook on the political system of the European Union with uh, Bjorn uh, Hoyland and and I would like to start with that and something connected with current issues in, in foreign politics. You, you depart from the observation that the European Union now possesses many of the attributes of, of modern political systems. But now these days, we, we have seen how the relationship with China is, is going on. And we see not only two Europes, but maybe different Europes, one that represents uh, von der Leyen, more, more aligned with the U.S., on the other hand, we see Macron trying a more European approach or more friendly approach to the relationship with China. So overall, in particular, how the European Union, the current political system of the European Union can handle these foreign um, foreign affairs issues in, in general, and in particular, uh, the rise of China and how can the, the EU navigate a multipolar world with a strong, coherent foreign policy that we would associate with a, with a nation state? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, if we go take a step back a little bit and think about how we understand state formation and state power, or particularly how, you know, loose confederations of states end up forming federal unions, um, what, we, what we normally think of in political science is that it's major external threats that force groups of states to come together and form unions. I mean, that's the standard sort of story from William Riker. And in a sense, you know, the, the EU or Europe has faced a series of, of major external and existential threats over the last uh, decade or so. And we think back to, you know, the asylum crisis, we think back to the 2008 uh, financial crisis, then the refugee crisis, and then the COVID and the EU's common response to COVID with common purchasing of vaccines. And now, of course, most recently, the Ukraine crisis and Russia's threat to Ukraine, which in a sense is an existential threat to all of Europe. And of course, you know, the, uh, alongside all of these things, we've seen the global rise of China and fundamental changes in global geopolitical world. So all of these factors, I think, are, are pushing Europe slowly and steadily towards more integration, integration of more policy powers and policy competences at the European level. And we're seeing in public opinion data across Europe, growing support for more European action on environment policy, climate policy, health policy post-COVID, uh, common immigration policies in response to the refugee crisis, common economic policies in response to the economic crises, and in now common defense policies in response particularly to uh, the Ukraine crisis and common industrial policies in response to, to growing industrial competition from China and also industrial competition from the United States, when we think about what the Biden administration has done with its recent, uh, you know, interventionist policies to promote uh, economic transition in the economy for new green technologies. And people are saying, why shouldn't Europe be doing the same? It's a big challenge to Europe, potentially losing investment or capital flight to the US 
because of the new environment that the Biden administration has created in the US for, for those sorts of developments. So that's all pushing in one direction. On the other direction, of course, is the fact that Europe is still a series of states, and some of these states are more powerful than others, particularly when it comes to foreign policy instruments. And of course, France is the only nuclear power uh, in the EU after the UK has now left with Brexit. So France, in a sense, on one side is saying, you know, yes, we want more Europe. But on the other hand, France is very conscious of the fact it's the only EU state with a seat on the UN Security Council. It's the only EU state with nuclear weapons. And France is not going to give up either of those two things very quickly. So, so this is where the sort of tension lies. I do think we'll gradually we'll see Europe building more and more common instruments. Um, and there's always this tension between the heads of government of the big member states and the commission president, because, you know, for the for a state, for Europe to really become more like a quasi nation state or a genuine federation, it needs to have a single executive power. I mean, that's one of the things that, that really defines a state is a single locus of executive power. And that's not the case with the EU. There's multiple loci of executive power. There's there's the commission on the one side, and then there's, in a sense, the heads of government of the, the member states on the other. And and this tension has always been there. And we haven't yet reached a situation where the heads of government are really willing to give up significant power to an EU president. I mean, we saw gradually new initiatives to try and create a, a, a democratic competition for the choice of the commission president with the Spitzenkandidat process, which are rival candidates for the commission president ahead of European Parliament elections. And, and some people thought this was, would be the beginning of the democratization of, of the choice of the, the, the most powerful office in the EU. And through that process of democracy, you could gradually see a sort of inducing effect, as Habermas would have called it. Inducing a, democracy would gradually evolve endogenously and power would evolve endogenously. In a sense, if you look at the United States, the president, formally speaking, is a very weak figure. You know, if you actually just read the rules of the Constitution, the president is a weak figure. Why is the president of the U.S. so powerful? It's because of the election. It's because the election gave the president this powerful mandate. So could you have a, an election in Europe that gives the commission president that powerful mandate? Um, and people thought that, the, that maybe that Spitzenkandidat process would be the beginning of that. However, of course, the heads of government from the big member states were sitting on the other side saying, we're not quite ready for this yet. And so they've not allowed this to develop. And I think that really epitomizes the tension between the EU having a single powerful executive versus the heads of government who have an interest in constraining the EU. Yeah, you say now that uh, the public in Europe is uh, favors more policy integration. But probably, as you mentioned as well, we cannot do it without more political integration, without more political debate, with a more integrated uh, party system. In one of your most influential works in uh, 2013, when you wrote What's Wrong with the European Union and How to Fix It, you contend that what the European Union needs precisely is more open political competition, because this will promote policy innovation, foster coalitions uh, across different institutions. And you argued then... I don't know now, that's a question, that, that the EU was ready for, for this challenge because there have been several institutional reforms since the 1980s that transformed the European Union into a more competitive uh, polity with political battles are coalitions developing inside the European Parliament. And we could see that those were 
actually emerging. And in, in that work, you, you said that we should not be afraid of that conflict because you said that more political conflict implies risk, obviously, but you uh, recognize that there were risks, but those risks were low because the EU has multiple checks and balances, and that's true. You cannot have, a, like the US, uh, mm. even more than the US, obviously, the executive much more limited. And you argue that the potential benefits are high because more open politics could enable the, the EU to overcome policy gridlock and rebuild public support and uh, obviously reduce the, the democratic deficit. Is that the case nowadays? Do you do you, do you still hold have I that? changed my mind? No, I, I, you know, yeah, I would still like to see this happen. I'd still like to see more open, transparent, transnational, European. Uh, politics evolving. In fact, if you go to Brussels and you work in the Brussels bubble in the Parliament or the Council or the Commission, you you see this already. But it's not transparent to the public at large, right? So you see a sort of centre-left, liberal-left coalition of politicians and parties in the governments, in the Parliament, in, in the Commission, in the Council, so Social Democrats, Greens, liberal-left, and so on, who have a certain agenda for what they want Europe to do. And we have a sort of coalition of centre-right forces, EPP and some free market liberals and what they want to do. And gradually also you're seeing a more sort of nationalist, populist Europe, which is increasingly represented in the, in the EU institutions, partly by in the European Parliament, there's been those anti-European forces for a while. But increasingly, we're also seeing that represented in the governments, of course, the PIS in Poland, Orban in Hungary, and now Maloney in Italy. Maloney, of course, is tacking very much to the centre, but I think she articulates very much that that sort of we want a, a Europe of nation states rather than a more federal integrated Europe. So you see and you witness that sort of battle between different political forces going on in Europe. It's not transparent to the publics. And so and that's that's largely because, of course, politics, all politics is local. And in this sense, politics local means at the nation state level. The irony is you know, Europe is an upside down political system. It has sense there's lots of powers in Brussels, but all the politics is at the national level. And what I was trying to do was try and work out ways or think about incentives to try and shift that, to start to make more politics at the European level. So I still hope that's the case. And but I think what I underestimated when I wrote that book a decade ago, and, you know, I'm, I'm still thinking about whether or not, or not I should write a second edition. <laughs> so maybe I should. Um, you should, you should, I think. <laughs> and what I think I underestimated was the resistance of national governments, was the resistance of the people who come to power at the national level and their the sort of the self-interest that they have. And, and primarily politicians are interested not in policy, they're interested in, in power. If they were interested in policy, if they really cared about policy, if they really cared about how to make the world a better place for our corner of Europe, they would give up more powers to Brussels. Because it's pretty clear that's what we need now in a globalizing world. But the reason why they don't do it is that would limit their own power. I mean, Brexit, of course, is the epitome of this sort of case. And the whole, the mantra in the UK of, of take back control, it became pretty clear that that was basically Westminster politicians saying what they wanted was to bring back control to Westminster. It wasn't about the British people taking back control. It was about them as national politicians taking back control. That was what was motivating them, them very much. And we see that very much across Europe and particularly in the bigger member states. And I worry Germany, in a sense, has shifted away from where it was a decade ago. And I, I, I see 
growing sentiment in Germany amongst German politicians and German political elites that they want to take back control, not in the same way as the UK, but, but in terms of resisting the sort of gradual shift of powers to Brussels and resisting increasing the powers of the Commission president and so on. After all, it was Merkel and the German CDU who scuffed the, the, the Spitzenkandidat at the last European elections. We ended up with Ursula von der Leyen, who's a German politician. She was not a candidate ahead of those elections. And so there's a big question mark, I think, about whether the open competition or the open contest for a commission president is actually going to take place ahead of the 2024 elections. If it doesn't, I think that's a major step backwards uh, for democratization of the EU. It's very interesting what you say between this contrast uh, in the European Union uh, that you are you are in Brussels, you see the the the, the good side, but then you move outside Brussels and you see these uh, twenty thirty percent of members of the European Parliament who are populist, far right, nationalist, and how this how this debate has poisoned uh, national debates in basically all European countries. So you have more obvious, more explicit enemies of the European project nowadays. Uh, and also, I agree with your pessimistic view you're uh, saying now about the evolution of Germany and so on. But I think from your work, we can also distill a more optimistic view. And, and I would like to ask you about this, about uh, the image that we have normally from outside the European Parliament is really a confusing one and, and a depressive, like uh, with unprecedented number of Eurosceptic members of the European Parliament. But you have, in a recent paper with uh, several co-authors, um, uh, you find actually that, uh, yes, the general view of the European Parliament is that it's a very diverse and, let's say, even chaotic uh, multidimensional space with left-right dimension, but also in the, this left-right uh, can be divided into economic uh, and cultural yeah. issues and also a pro and anti-European dimension. So kind of confusing and fragmented political scenario. But what you find, and correct me if I'm wrong, is I wouldn't say it's more optimistic, but at least more order. You show more order. Uh, pointing out that actually, and I would like you to to share with us a little bit the, what surprised you about those results, to me, obviously, were very surprising, that you find that many of the preferences of these members of the European Parliament are actually aligned along a single dimension. Could could you? Yeah, I mean, in a, several different projects that I've worked on, whether we look at public opinion, whether we look at national political parties, whether we look at the preferences of the MEPs, or whether we look at the voting behavior of the MEPs, I think we're gradually seeing the evolution of one single dimension of European or EU level politics, if you like. I mean, we used to think there was a sort of economic left right and a social cultural liberal conservative dimension and a pro and anti European dimension. But what I think we're increasingly finding is they're all lining up. Now, where we're getting a sort of moderate left which is economically interventionist, socially liberal, and pro-European. And we're getting a sort of economic right, which is more socially conservative and more Eurosceptic. And they are the sort of two dominant forces in Europe. There's other dimensions and other forces in Europe, but that, that's the dominant structure, I think, of politics. And so if you, if, if you picked 
anyone in the public in Europe and you ask them what their preferences were on economics, you could predict their preferences on those other two dimensions. If you ask a political party in Europe where they're located on economics, you could predict where they're located on the other dimensions. And it's the same increasingly with the MEPs, and we've seen it with the voting behavior of the members of the European Parliament. In fact, I was just reviewing a paper for a journal where they've looked at roll call voting in the Parliament, updating our research, and they find exactly that result. They find a new single dimension of voting in the European Parliament, which is mirroring what we found in the paper you were referring to, which is about the preferences of the MEPs. And so on the one hand, you can say that's good because we see a clarification of a kind of complex space into one dimension. On the other hand, it's it could be potentially problematic for Europe because if you think about, say, the centre-left getting a majority at the European level, the centre-right is then going to become more and more Eurosceptic. Um, <laughs> or if you're the centre-right come to power, they're not going to promote more European integration. Having one dimension makes it difficult for you to build coalitions across that, across the divide, if you like. And so that's the concern that I have. When you think about American politics, when we think about the left in America is pro the US federal government, the right in America is pro the states. You know, in a sense, we're getting the same kind of politics in Europe. Why is that? It's because people on the left generally like the state. They like the state to intervene. They like the state to, to regulate markets. They like the state to redistribute wealth. They like the state to enforce rights and protect rights. Whereas the right tends to say, we, we'd rather, you know, we don't want the state to intervene. We'd rather have social freedoms and we'd rather decentralize decisions on questions like social questions about family or gay rights or things like that. Why should Europe interfere in these questions? So, so you can see the same sort of politics we've seen for 60 or 70 years in the United States, if you roll back to the New Deal, I mean, William Riker, who I mentioned already, one of my favorite US political scientists, famous scholar of US federalism. Um, he was, of course, not writing about Europe, but I find a lot of what he wrote about US federalism very applicable to Europe. And he was writing about how uh, in the 1970s in the United States, if you were on the liberal left, it was rational for you to be in favor of the federal government. And if you were on the free market right, it was rational for you to be opposed to the federal government. And I think we're gradually seeing that sort of politics emerging in Europe in terms of attitudes towards the EU. Yes. Uh, on the other hand, there are there are, that's challenging the prediction of many. I mean, many many scholars were saying what we see in Europe is actually the far right, uh, like Le Pen, moving left in politics, defending more welfare state. Of course, it's a welfare chauvinism, but moving and, and let's say replacing the the socialist or even the the communist. So, is that a fake movement on the on no, the? No, I think you're the, right. The I, I, right. I, I, yeah, I mean, across Europe, the we don't see it with Meloni, for example. Yes, that's, exactly. That's really, the populist yeah. radical right across in some many countries in Europe are actually moving left on economics. I think there's a limit to how far they will move, though, and I think there's several reasons why. I think one is the core supporters of them are a sort of lower middle class, petty bourgeois, shopkeepers, and small businessmen, which is in, in a in a very fragmented free market economy is actually quite a large social milieu. Um, you know, skilled working class, plumbers, electricians, taxi drivers, and so on, plus also, you know, small business owners. So this, what they don't like is they don't, they don't want the state necessarily to, they want the state to provide basic services, but they don't want high taxes, right? So this is the, that's very different to the sort of liberal left supporters who tend to be in the public sector. 
where, you know, there they want the state to provide generous public pensions. They want the state to provide general public, generous public services, often which employs them uh, and so on. So, so I think there's a limit to how far the sort of populist radical right will move on economics. They tend to be anti-free trade. That's true. Uh, and they tend to be in favor of the state providing generous pensions and generous health care. But they don't tend to be in favor of higher taxes or expansion of, of the civil service or generally expansion of public services. So, so, so I think there's a limit to how much it's meant that the center right across Europe has become fragmented and growing gap between those preferences of, say, the skilled private sector employees in big businesses or the high skilled sectors and more lower skilled private sector workers in some of the small uh, smaller businesses in Europe. When we think about the preferences of the sort of urban, educated, private sector, middle class, they tend to be socially liberal, but very free market. I'm working on another paper where I'm calling them new young liberals. And these new young liberals we're seeing growing across Europe of an urban, educated, private sector, middle class, who tend to be very free market, socially liberal. Um, and they, they don't, the more the mainstream center right drifts towards the radical right, on some of these questions, the more these types of voters are up for grabs and they're now starting to vote for liberals or greens or even the social democrats. And correct me if I'm wrong, but those new young liberals re represent a, a substantial part of the electorate, isn't it? It could be, I don't growing know, part of the electorate. 20% or something like that it's, of the British electorate. In some countries, it's as much as 30% and it's growing fast, right? It depends on the size of the private sector. And also when we think about the fast growing industries, film, fashion, design, media, uh, higher education, tech, you know, these sorts of sectors, um, these tend to be, well, the private sector has transformed. If we think 30 years ago, a job in the private sector was a job for life, very similar to a job in the public sector, maybe perhaps slightly higher paid, but now a job in the private sector, com the contrast with a public sector job is enormous, much more highly paid, but much more precarious, shorter term contracts, smaller business, people building up a portfolio type career across you know, different jobs. So that's, that's been a transformation. And so those, those voters, some of them are pro-European, a lot of them are, are more skeptical about Europe. They, do, they, they don't think Europe provides them with enough opportunities, but they're not necessarily gonna support the populist right. Looking forward to read that paper and also to read the second version of that paper when you analyze the consequences of chat GPT for <laughs> the yes. elimination of some of those jobs, those creative, uh, highly It's very early to tell. I mean, we're now seeing papers in political science that are looking at how, how digitization has transformed you know the workforce and has as a result has transformed political preferences but it's been 20 or 30 years right so so i think we need to wait 20 or 30 years before we know how chat gpt has transformed voter preferences maybe a little early Along similar lines let's move to another of your provocative uh, works this with tarika abuchat uh, uh, when you were questioning this division of the Brahmin left versus the merchant right. So you discussed the connection between education, class, uh, competition and redistribution in Western Europe. And you revisit the, the claims of uh, Thomas Piketty when uh, he says that, uh, well, there is a changing support coalition for, for parties on the left. The left now represents the highly educated, the, the Brahmin, the university professors and, and the creative uh, people. Um, created job people and uh, and as a result the redistributive preferences of the working class do not find representation uh, today because the, the right is in favor of the merchants and, and the left is Brahmin and so no one is kind of appealing to their economic um, interest um, yeah 
Can you explain so, so us a little I bit think, about I this? Piketty makes this sort of provocative claim, um, and he but he backs it up with quite very impressive public opinion data from national election studies from many, many countries across the world. And he shows how higher educated groups in general vote for the left, and he aggregates all of the parties on the left, and higher income groups vote for parties on the right. And so he calls the kind of Brahmin left versus the merchant right. And, and then he says... That helps explain why the, we're seeing declining redistribution and growing inequality, because these highly educated groups that vote for the left aren't in favor of redistribution. Because in a sense that the left behind groups, the lower income, lower educated groups are not represented either by the left or by the right. And so that's his way of explaining why these groups vote for the populist right, he would think. Now, Tarek and I, when we read this, had you know spontaneously had exactly the same impressions because we've been working with European public opinion data, European social survey data and so on. And we hadn't found those sorts of patterns at all. And so we, we said, let's sort of write a paper on this. And what we found was that, yes, higher educated groups vote for parties on the left, tend to vote for parties on the left, but not necessarily for the mainstream center left. They tend to vote for the liberal left, liberal, the Greens, or more radical left parties, the mainstream center left are still mainly voted for by some of the low to middle educated uh, workers. And, and when it comes to the low, very lowest educated groups, it's not true that they vote for the mainstream center right. Yes, they vote for the more populist radical right. So in a sense, the claim he was making about education is not as clear or as clean as he, tend to, as he seemed to allude to. Um, the other thing I think that's missing in, in his work is the fact that, uh, and I got into an argument in, in the UK after the last election in the UK on, on social media with Rob Ford, who's a professor at Manchester, when he was saying how uh, after the 2019 election in Britain, Labour is now the, the, the party of the middle class and the Tories are the parties of the working class because all the higher educated groups are voting Labour and the lower educated groups are voting Conservative. And I said, well, this is ridiculous because who are these higher educated groups? These higher educated groups tend to be young because we've only seen mass expansion of education relatively recently in the UK, urban and um, relatively low paid and have massive debt. They have debt from education, they have housing debt and massive costs. While these lower educated groups he's talking about tend to be rural older voters who retirees who are paid off their mortgage, sitting on a fat more pension with a public pension. You know, who are the working class here? <laughs> so in a sense, class is not quite as simple as it used to be in terms of thinking about that. It's much more complex. That's the first set of issues. The other set of issues that I think with Piketty, we to make the leap of faith between higher educated groups voting for the left is the explanation why we don't see redistribution. Well, in fact, if you actually look at the preferences of those voters who vote for the left, it tend, they tend to still be in favor of redistribution. In fact, the biggest predictor of voting for a party on the left is not education. It's not income. It's not class. It's not urban rural. It's attitudes towards redistribution. In fact, the redistributive coalition, the voters still, and there's a whole reason why people are in favor of higher taxes and more spending. Yes, it's not just purely structurally determined by education or class or these sorts of things. There are people's values and ideology, and that overwhelmingly drives still people to vote for parties on the left. So, so it's not clear to make that the last leap he makes in his argument between higher education groups vote for the left. That's why we don't see redistribution. I think what is missing is 
is, is there's other reasons why we haven't seen redistribution. I think part of that story is globalization, competition for capital, how difficult it is for states to tax higher income people, how wealth has moved, you know, wealth is generated not necessarily by salaries, but more by owning assets and how difficult it is to tax assets, particularly mobile assets. So I think there's a lot of structural reasons why it's been very difficult for states to raise sufficient capital to carry on redistributing wealth. And I, I don't think it can easily be explained by the fact that higher educated people tend to vote for the left. I think your results are very, very interesting. And precisely this, these two ideas that the social democrats uh, or the center-left parties get votes for, from the working class, maybe not the Greens or the new left, but the social democrats still. And also that preferences for distribution are the main driving forces for those parties might explain this kind of paradox if we take into account this uh, opinions like uh, five or 10 years ago about the demise of the social democracy. And what we see is actually the social democrats ruling uh, over many European countries. I mean, the Scandinavian Peninsula, the Iberian Peninsula, and many, many other countries. So would you agree that your findings uh, are related with this kind of relatively unexpected second life of the social democracy yeah. in Europe? or And also related with this, maybe the main problem now is not on the this first old European family of the social democracy, but in the second old one, in the conservatives and, and centre-right? Yeah, I mean, so partly there's a sort of natural pendulum of politics, right? So we had a period with centre-right in power in many countries in Europe, and now we've got a period where the centre-left are winning, winning back. Um, and, and it's true that social democrats are back in uh, compared to where they were, say, 10 or 15 years ago, but still at much lower levels. And so when, you know, you see so social democrats are back in government in Germany as part of a, a three-party coalition with an average vote share that's 10 or 15% below where the social democrats were 20 years ago. Social democrat parties come back in, were back in government in Scandinavia, but again, with much lower vote share. So Spain and Portugal are slightly different, but still I think what is happening across Europe is after this period of the rise and fall of social democracy, what we're seeing is social democrats starting to realize they need to build broader coalitions or they need to build a new coalition. And either that's a coalition amongst political parties, like it is in Scandinavia or in Germany, or it's a coalition amongst new social groups as what is happening in, in, in Iberia, where social democrats can no longer rely on the two main pillars of support that they had, which were industrial workers and public sector workers. Industrial workers are just smaller in numbers. We've seen the decline of industry in Europe and the growth of the service sector, just fewer industrial workers, one of the core pillars of social democrats. And then public sector workers are far more fragmented in terms of their political preferences and their values and often voting for other parties on the left, as well as perhaps liberal parties on the center right. So I think what is happening is gradually a realization of social democrats. They need to think about what's the new social coalition or political coalition that we need to put together. And that's what's happening. So I think you're right that, that there's a new sort of politics emerging amongst the social democratic left. And the big issue or the big interesting issue, I think, in party politics in Europe is, is the challenge for the center right, because, because we've seen the growth in the populist right. And the real dilemma for many center right parties across Western Europe in particular is do they move rightwards and try and capture try and stop these parties outflanking or, or do they stay towards the center? Um, Italy, being in Italy is an interesting case, of course, with Meloni emerging on, on the radical right. And, 
And now there's the big question mark is she's going to carry on, is she going to govern as a, as a radical right politician? Or is she going to try and use this opportunity to move towards the center and create a new center right party, replacing the old center right in Italy? She has a sort of window opportunity to replace Berlusconi and Forza Italia. And she's already outflanked the other radical right party in Italy, Lega, who now clearly utter her to the right of her. So she's moved more centrist. In some ways, this happened in Spain. If we look back and think about the Partido Popular in Spain, they came out of what was a post-fascist party, Alianza Popular, and gradually involved towards a moderate party. And now again, they're finding themselves outflanked in Spain by Vox, a new party on, on the radical right in Spain. So a lot of the action now is actually on the on the center right versus the radical right in many countries in Europe. And there's gradually a sorting out. In some ways, it's more of a challenge on the right than it is on the left, ironically, because that social milieu of the sort of left field, as, as Celia Hausermann and, and Tarek Adochadi call it, call it, that left field of voters who are moderately left on economics and socially liberal on social questions is quite a broad, big field. And, and the gaps between those parties in that field, the sort of social liberals, social democrats, greens, or even radical left, the actual policy distance between those parties is pretty small. And so it's not that difficult to create a kind of broad coalition that might appeal to different sorts of voters in that in that field. On the right, the gaps between the sort of urban, young urban liberals that we talked about to a socially liberal but economically free market and the sort of petty bourgeoisie or older rural socially conservative nationalist voters, that's a huge gap. And it's very, very difficult to think about how to build a policy package that could appeal across that very broad, heterogeneous group of voters. And I think that's the challenge that a lot of parties on the center right are now facing. That's a great insight, actually, uh, Simon, because I think that the, the, the main challenge that social democrats had was to appeal to these new coalitions. You say that the, the industrial workers and the public sector workers coalition no longer can work or no longer can deliver a large electoral support for the social democrats. And I was thinking, well, it's difficult also for the social democrats to appeal to the new liberals when the uh, new left uh, sort of uh, liberal social democracy of the Tony Blair is is actually not precisely what uh, the, the mm. model that the new social democrats have. But actually, your your answer uh, in the sense that the the difference on the left is that the the challengers of the left to the social democrats are very close in policy actually they are basically it's a question of leadership in many cases you have pointed out the case of spain it would be very difficult to find the policy differences between the two three major uh, political figures on the left quite on the on the opposite on the right we see that in europe especially that the challengers of the far right are much stronger for the center right Let's move to the to the Brexit, which is kind of the. <laughs> let's not talk about about the past. Uh, you you have explored uh, also which is going to be the the relationship between the EU and the the UK now, which is your your prediction. I mean, to paraphrase uh, Churchill, uh, as you argue, the, the the UK is leaving the the European Union on January 2020, but that was not the end of Brexit or perhaps even the beginning of the end, but was in many ways the end of the beginning. Uh, so you argue with, uh, together with other uh, Canadian uh, scholars, you conducted a, a conjoint survey experiment on the Brexit trade trade-off. And I, 
we like to ask you which which are uh, based on this work, which are your prediction of what's going to happen and yeah. the evolution of the current trade and cooperation agreement between Brussels and, and London is going to move into a more softer direction or a more harder direction? Yes, I, I think a lot of it depends on who is going to be in power in Britain over the next five to 10 years. Um, so the trade and cooperation agreement was a very basic free trade agreement um, covering um, very minimal uh, rules, common sets of rules on the free movement of goods and services and capital, um, but did not give the UK really extensive access to the single market, did not cover rules on the free movement of people, did not do much on the service sector trade. Um, so, so very sort of basic goods based non-zero tariff type uh, framework. Um, it, but it did also include if the UK drops its standards, so if the UK falls below the EU standards, the EU can retaliate and even restrict free trade with the UK. We're now starting to see that bite in the UK economy. So most of the estimates are that this has had an, has an impact of, of between three and 5% of UK GDP, a sort of one-off shock. Um, so, you know, that's pretty major. That's like a, a facing a major recession, if you like, um, that the UK has, has inflicted on itself. With the Conservatives in power, it's very difficult for them to admit that this is because of Brexit. So they say this is not because of Brexit. This is because of the downturn in the global economy, the war in Ukraine, COVID, everything but Brexit. Right? And when everyone say, hang on a minute, how come everybody else has recovered from these things and the UK hasn't? If you look at the sort of, you know, the trends amongst the G7 or the G20 or so or the OECD, you can see the UK is right at the bottom. Um, so that it's very hard for them to admit that this is because of Brexit. Um, and I think they won't be able to. And I, um, I don't think we'll see much of a shift until unless there is a change in government. Let's say Labour wins the next election, which could be it'll be sometime in 2024, could be in the spring of 24, could be in the autumn of 2024. Labour currently is saying we have the same policy as the Conservatives. We we don't want to re-enter the single market. We don't want to open the box of the free movement of people. We don't want to be closer to the EU. They talk about cooperation on research and a few other bits and pieces, but essentially they're prepared to accept the status quo. I think they're doing that for political reasons. And I think most people think that once they get into power, if they do get into power, things will start to shift and there will be growing pressure on them to start to build back bridges with the EU. And it's easier for Labour to do that than the Conservatives because Labour will not want or not have pressure on it to, to have a framework that allows them to deregulate further. So the Conservative Party on the right, with support from small businesses in the UK, are still promising they want to further deregulate the British economy, and they're trying to figure out how to do that. Uh, and if they get closer to the EU, for example, some way to join the single market, they will not be able to do that. Whereas I don't think Labour cares necessarily about that. They want to maintain high environment standards and high social standards. And I think we will start to have a discussion about whether the UK could move towards, say, a Swiss model or perhaps even a Norwegian type relationship with the EU. Um, some sort of increase or improved access to the single market uh, for the UK, um, and even opening the box of, you know, reopening the debate about the free movement of people. Britain has massive labor shortages as a result of the fact that 
Polish and Lithuanian and other workers from the Central Eastern Europe went home during COVID and didn't come back. So we're seeing huge labor shortages in the agriculture sector, through the food processing sector, the healthcare sector, the elderly care sector. You know, a lot of the lower skilled jobs in the UK, enormous worker shortages. And this is, of course, leading to frictions, pushing up inflation, leading to so even food shortages in supermarkets. I mean, a lot of this is, is not, you know, if you think about, it's not a direct result of the fact that there's tariffs or supply chain restrictions. This is a direct result of the fact we don't have workers in the economy as a result of Brexit. And so I think there's there's businesses are trying to patch this up with different agreements with different countries, but but it would be much simpler if we went back to some kind of arrangement where we could have more liberal movement of labor, probably not complete free movement of labor, but I think we'll start to have a conversation about some kind of blue card scheme, joint UK EU work permit or something like that. I can see that being on the cards in the coming years. And I guess that a little bit uh, coincide with what the median British voter probably wanted, which is kind of a Norwegian or Swiss uh, intermediate stage between hard Brexit on one yes. extreme and full integration with the European Union on, on the other. So at the end, maybe democracy works. <laughs> it's going to exactly. take one decade of, uh, but... Uh, in a, a 52-48 vote, the median voter was a soft Brexiteer. You're absolutely right. Yeah, it's time to conclude, but one final question uh, about the... Maybe the main cleavage in British society, which is maybe not the economy or immigration or Brexit, but uh, monarchy versus Meghan and oh. Prince Harry. <laughs> and I would like to ask you, ask you yes, uh, as an anecdote, whether this uh, is revealing some kind of deep cultural uh, clash uh, more between the more cosmopolitan uh, urban elite uh, versus traditional rural Britain, or is a question maybe of generational uh, question uh, with the uh, Youngers with more sympathy towards Harry and, and Meghan and, and the elders, uh, older British more uh, with the monarchy. What, what's explaining that? Well, I think you're right that there's you, you mentioned several dimensions there. You mentioned sort of urban rural. You mentioned age. Uh, you mentioned sort of cosmopolitan traditional. There's another dimension you didn't mention, which is centre periphery, which is a sort of, you know, the, the Celts. The Welsh and the Scots and the Northern Irish, or at least the Catholic in Northern Irish. I mean, and and another one you also didn't mention was was minorities in Britain. So what survey data shows is it's younger voters, higher educated voters, ethnic minority voters, and Celtic fringe voters are all less supportive of the monarchy than your classic older white rural British voter, English voter, if you like. And so. We're not sure whether these are age effects or cohort effects. If they're cohort effects, that meaning that you know that gradually this will be held through people's lives, I think uh, you know I think the monarchy is in trouble. The jury is out on Charles, King Charles. Uh, I think that a lot of people felt, or there was at least a group of voters that felt, a group of citizens that felt, we they wouldn't want to question the monarchy because they loved the Queen, but now she's gone then now they're willing to question the monarchy. And I think this is a real challenge for Charles. I'm not sure. And the other dimension of this we've not really talked about is Britain's relation with its former colonies. And I think this will change quite dramatically uh, in the coming decades, when a lot of these former colonies are now starting to question Britain's legacy, colonial legacy and slavery legacy, asking that the debate about reparations has begun in several countries. And this is not a coincidence because several of these colonies were quite sympathetic towards the queen 
because the Queen was perceived as sticking up their interests against the British government. She spoke out in the Commonwealth in favour of a lot of these countries against Thatcher, for example. She spoke out in favour of uh, she was very supportive of independence of several of, of African, former African colonies in the 1960s. And so the leaders of these countries and the citizens of these countries remember that. Now that Charles, now she's gone and Charles is in power, now it's much either gloves are off, if you like. Now they can talk about Britain's legacy, Britain's colonial legacy, Britain's slavery legacy, and what is Britain going to do about it? And so I think that's something to watch in the coming decades. The Queen is dead, long lived. Yes. <laughs> the monarchy or the European Union has been a pleasure talking to you, uh, Simon, on these issues and looking forward to talk to you in the in the future to illuminate us with uh, with your insights in political science, but so connected to current uh, issues and discussions in, in politics. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Victor. Bye.